You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. As part of our latest series on Iran, last week we brought you the first half of our conversation with Ray Take, Senior Fellow for Middle East Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. Today, we bring you part two. Ray discusses the impacts of U.S. sanctions on Iran, the latest crackdown on protesters, Iran's growing ties with Russia and China, and what we might expect going forward. Thanks for tuning in, and here's Elisa. The other thing that I'd like to ask you about is the role of the CIA in sort of meddling and more or less, and not just the CIA, to be fair, various secretaries of state, various presidents of the United States, continuing to sort of engineer how politics would play out in Iran. Can you give us a brief history of these things and how they may have led to the popularity of somebody like Khomeini? I tend to be perhaps a bit of a revisionist on this. I believe that the Iranian people are drivers of their own history. I, I believe they determine the course of their own national destiny while denying it. And I think to some extent, U.S.-Iran relations cannot be understood historically. They have to be understood, in a sense, sociologically. You have a political culture in Iran that does not want to take accountability for its mistake, and you have the Americans who believe it's all about them. East and West come together almost seamlessly. I would say during the Shah's tenure, every American president that the Shah dealt with, and he dealt with presidents from Roosevelt to Carter, with the exception of Richard Nixon, told him to reform his economy and his country, to broaden political representation, including Eisenhower. Eisenhower was particularly frustrated with the Shah not broadening his government and not bringing in more people in terms of expansion of authority. Richard Nixon did not. He didn't care about that. Every American president and every American secretary of state, again, with the exception of Nixon and Kissinger, advised the Shah against a military buildup because they thought the costs were obvious, the advantages not so. Every Secretary of Defense that the Shah dealt with during the time of heavy spending on the military since the 1960s opposed it. That includes Robert McNamara, Mel Laird, James Schlesinger, Don Rumsfeld, and Harold Brown. The the administration that was most effective in dealing with Iran was actually the Kennedy administration. They pressed very hard for reform. And they tried to limit the amount of military supplies that the Shah wanted, because the Shah was forever trying to expand his army. The United States made a share of mistakes in Iran. There's no question about it. But I happen to believe that American imprint in Iran was not exclusively, but largely benign. That's not to absolve America for its misapprehensions and misjudgments. But essentially, it was a relationship whereby the client state if the Shah can be called a client, which it never was, was doing things that the government in the United States disapproved of. But by 1970s, America had grown more dependent on Iran than the other way around. The Vietnam War drained America of initiative, of, of confidence, and it needed the Shah, it thought, to patrol the Middle East. So the leverage changed to the side of the monarchy at that time. But altogether, American presidents tried to impress upon the Shah the importance of a greater degree of representation and decentralization and sharing of power, which he didn't listen to. 
But prior to that, it's widely acknowledged in the United States that the United States did orchestrate a coup in Iran and that there was lingering bitterness. Can you just talk a little bit about that and what impact it may have had on sort of the Iranian psyche? The 1953 coup is enormously controversial. It is beyond dispute that the United States intervened in Iran's internal affairs. And actually, the 1953 coup is not one coup, but two. The first one is in August 15, 16, that fails. The second one succeeded. And it's a very complicated, complicated affair. Again, I tend to believe that the, those Iranians who were opposed to Prime Minister Mossadegh, who was a prime minister who was eventually overthrown, were instrumental in his overthrow. And the American role was less than one thing. So again, I tend to be revisionist on that because I do believe the Iranians have to claim responsibility for their own history. I will say one thing about the Islamic Republic's approach to the coup. The Islamic Republic's approach to the coup is very interesting. Ayatollah Khomeini, the founder of the state, never talked about the coup. He only talked about it twice, as far as I can tell, once he came to power. And the argument of the Islamist revolutionaries was that all other previous revolts against the Shah failed, including Prime Minister Mossadegh's, because they did not enjoy divine approbation. And the Islamic revolution succeeded because God wanted it to succeed. And they were they are very critical of Prime Minister Mossadegh's secularism and liberalism, because he was essentially for separation of church and state. He bent that way. The clerical estate in 1953 was very much pro-monarchy, because the Shah was a traditional monarch, which at that time was willing to share power with traditional institutions, the military, the clergy, and the merchant class. One of the things that Shaw did was manage to alienate the clergy, which you really had to put a lot of effort in, because the clergy were essentially by nature pro-monarchy. They believed in the institution of monarchy as a barrier to secular intervention. And once the Shaw started talking about the women franchise, a greater degree of role, gender roles in Iran, land reform, which means taking over the property of the clerical community, never a good idea. Then you begin to see the opposition and also Shah's relationship with the United States and what they believe to have been the Western cultural penetration of Iran, particularly the youth that the Shah allowed in their view. So he was an agent of cultural subversion. So the Shah just messed up that relationship. It may not have been that level of acrimony between the two, but he did it. But going back to 53, 53 is something that's invoked. I'm not sure if there's any resonance in Iran. I don't think anybody gets up in the morning and says, you know, 75 years ago, this happened. If you're a 20, 16-year-old cutting your hair in Iran today and saying death to dictator, you're not saying, well, 75 years ago, Kermit Roosevelt did this. And this is a contentious historical agreement where we have to look into the root cause of this. The elderly Iranian clerics and American college professors love talking about this. But I don't think it resonates that much in the street. And there's four, seven, eight college professors in the United States that believe that original sin was the most important uh, aspect of the relationship between the two. Uh, again, this is not to suggest that the United States did not intervene in affairs of Iran. It did so. But the level and scope of that intervention, I think, needs to be studied more carefully and dispassionately. I will say one of the things about the 1953 coup is it is the only... And there were a lot of coups in the United States Cold War history. There were three, four, five coups that Eisenhower did in the Middle East. 
two in Iran, 153, 158. Nobody talks about the 58 one. But one of the things about the 1953 coup that is quite remarkable is it has managed to colonize the subconscious of a significant number of Americans. <laughs> I, I don't know how that has happened, but most Americans who know very little or nothing about Iran have some sort of an opinion on the 1953 coup, <laughs> including the film Argo. <laughs> I know you saw that film. Yes. <laughs> it starts with 53. It did. Yes. So I, I do wonder, though, it, what do you think as you look out right now at Iran getting um, it gets some coverage? I mean, I think where I'm acquiring a lot more coverage is on foreign news outlets. There's a lot more coverage occurring uh, on British, French even Japanese television right now. And I wonder what you make of this, having been a student of your home country now for many years. What, what do you make of the scope and the tenor of these protests and what might be the outcome? There are two questions there. The latter is more difficult to assess. It is my opinion that Iran today is in some kind of a revolutionary stage. First of all, you have, there's two things that, authoritarian regime requires sustained power. And the Islamic Republic is not a totalitarian state. It aspires to be that, but it's actually a clumsy authoritarian state. It, it's sort of a despotic regime of that variety requires an atomized population and a sense of fear. What has happened since September is different social classes that have protested the Islamic Republic have come together under the slogan of women, liberty, freedom. There has always been protests in Iran. There were much protests in summer, teachers protesting over their salary, farmers over lack of water, retirees over lack of benefits, women over reimposition of the religious attire with greater discipline. Yeah, everybody was protesting. But the death of Ms. Amini in September 16 brought all these protest groups together under the same umbrella. So when the teachers are protesting today, they're not protesting with lack of pay they're protesting under this unitary slogan. So all the grievances have been amalgamated in a single movement. The population seems to have lost a sense of fear, or it was something you always see if you're an authoritarian state. And the, the regime seems flat-footed and incapable of addressing this situation. Nobody in the opposition thinks the regime can reform itself, and they are calling for its extinction. On the other hand, the regime describes the protests as externally generated. So the narrative of the two sides is very much apart and largely unabridgeable. Both parties have advantages in this struggle. The regime had at disposal security services, however reliable they may be, and sort of the control of the state. And the opposition has at its disposal grievances that are unlikely to be tranquilized by the state and a sense of loss of fear and the belief that the accountability and dignity can only be approached by the overthrow of the regime. Both sides have ceilings. The opposition is leaderless at this point, and a revolution cannot succeed without revolutionaries. So in that, the, the challenge for the opposition is to maintain this resilience, develop some kind of a national leadership. The challenge for the regime is to figure out how to address all this and how the security forces are, from their perspective, not be exhausted by daily exposure to civilian protests. So we're in this revolutionary stage. If you're betting on which stock, I would bet on the opposition stock because they had a higher ceiling. The regime is, this is as good as they're going to get. Uh, they're not going to get better. And one of the things that has happened in the life of every aging despot, it happened with Mao, it happened with Shah, 
is they narrow the circle to people that do not question their authority. By definition, that means a lot of mediocrities. Yes, and and I I see that being predicted right right now as she's been elected in China for the third. That's time. right. That's that right. This will be the end of him too. And President Putin, they all narrow the circle to those who submit to their authority, and as a result, it becomes only the mediocre survive in the system. And that's the, the, the Ali family has undertaken a very relentless purge of the system, and so the people, the today's president is less capable than the previous president. The head of the Revolutionary Guards is less capable than his predecessor. The system's cadre is, is actually declining in terms of talent at the time when they're facing what is nearly an existential crisis. Okay. Well, one of the tools that we have as national security legal experts is we have something called sanctions. Of course, we've just about sanctioned Iran to death. But my question to you is: What do you see as one the efficacy of these sanctions? And two, whether they've had any impact on this population, including the individuals who are protesting now, and if so, what do you think that impact must be? American sanctions architecture is very complicated, which is a way of saying I don't understand it. The Treasury Department keeps coming up with stuff that I never heard of before. I never knew what SWIFT was until they did something called SWIFT and the currency exchanges and all that. The American sanctions, in aggregate, have damaged Iran's economy. Have weakened Iran at home, and have deprived it of revenue for some of its external activities. So, in that particular sense, they have been successful at a tactical level of putting economic pressure on Iran and on, on the regime, and the decline in the economy of the country, which is not entirely attributed to sanctions. It has to do with mismanagement. It has to do with corruption. It has to do with a pandemic that the country could not get a hold of. So the cause of the Iranian economic ills are not limited to sanctions; they have to do with the entire array of factors, and the fact that the clerics were always a very poor steward of the economy because they never understood it. They had other preoccupations, and corruption has become a very serious problem in Iran. You see corruption in many developing societies, but in a republic that defines itself as government of God, corruption tends to be particularly glaring and galling. Particularly at the time when you're asking for sacrifice from the population, so it has it has debilitated the Iranian economy, and as a result, created space for public protests. It has not affected the decision making of the state in terms of its imperial adventure, in terms of its identity, a revolutionary identity. But it has weakened the the regime's ability. Particularly in maintaining its patronage networks, because the Islamic Republic is not just a divine republic; it's also a welfare state, and its ability to maintain its welfare provisions have attenuated because of its own inabilities to manage its economy, and also because of the international confrontation of the past several years. Well, apparently, it hasn't prevented them from supplying attack drones to Russia right. either. So it'll be interesting to see if this has any impact.、Uh, I guess the idea being this might be a force multiplier to the people in the streets at this time. Right. Well,、uh, the the Russian relationship it has to be kind of thought about for for a long time, for about ten years. There's been a discussion within the corridors of power about something they call an Eastern orientation. That we should not rely on Western commerce, Western investment, or Western markets. We should develop relationship with like-minded Eastern countries, and particularly being Russia and China. 
and essentially developing an economic zone. I mean, the Russians and the Iranians have signed a lot of agreements in the past weeks. Despite all the military cooperation that they have had, the economic partnership actually was not well developed. As a matter of fact, the Joint Commission on Economics hadn't met in three years. So there's an attempt to revive this sort of, it, create an economic zone between Russia, Central Asia, Iran, China, that will trade with each other, use each other's banking industries, and therefore somehow this new trading zone would be immunized from American sanctions penetration. And this Eastern orientation that they're trying to create, whether they succeed or not, remains to be seen. But all three leaders at this point, Khamenei has always talked about economy of resistance, as he calls it, namely that we should essentially maintain internal markets and like, trade with like-minded states. President Putin at this point does not have economic interlocutors with the Western countries, and they're likely to diminish whatever they are. And President Xi seems to have made a catastrophic decision that Chinese sovereignty requires some degree of reduction of economic growth. And that's Ali Khamenei's position, by the way, that sovereignty requires poverty. <laughs> and poverty is a price that people should pay for sovereignty and self-determination. Uh, that seems to be, for some reason, penetrating the Chinese mentality as well. So the idea is to create a zone of political economic partnership. The, the missile export to Russia has to be understood in that context. Yes, and I would point out that at some point in Iran, you remember, captured a U.S. drone and I'm mm -hmm. sure reverse engineered it because in fairness yeah. to Iran, they have amazing scientists and medical practitioners. So it no doubt they have improved on that, some of that technology, and that's a frightening thought. So this is a, a trick question, but you've given this so much thought for so many years. What would ever bring the United States and Iran back together? I feel perhaps naively that we have more in common than we care to accept in terms of our personalities, our, our Velshen shown and the like. What would it take for the countries to kind of resume closer relationship with one another? I think a different Iranian regime, frankly. The Islamic Republic's entire ideological self-image is predicated on anti-Westernism and concern about Western, first and foremost, cultural penetration. 80% of the country is in the age of 30, is connected to social media. And they actually worry about this very significantly. They constantly talk about that the Western cultural products are narcotic to lull the sensibilities of the youth and make them secular, irreligious, and indifferent to, to ideological determinations of the state. And they always say, but our youth is too resilient and too devoted to God for that. The cultural subversion, America as an agent of cultural subversion, more so than military threat at this particular point, is something that they're extraordinarily concerned about. And the cultural rule and the seductive culture of the United States and the West, by the way, not, not just the United States, they can never understand why their young people are not studying ponderous religious texts but watching movies. They can never wrap their head around it. Like, why are they doing this? They could be studying Quran. They could be studying theological expositions. Well, why are they doing this? This must be an American plot to once again assume preponderance of control in, in Iran through the use of its seductive cultural influences.
All right. Well, you are, Ray, you're an incredibly serious guy. I keep wanting to bring up all the Iranian American comedians that I ever heard when I lived in Beverly Hills in my little rent control department. They were wild fun and said crazy things. And I just remember the one who first was explaining to an audience that had no idea what he was talking about, why Iranians were Aryans. And I found myself laughing so hard, I really had trouble breathing, maybe for hours after I was there. But you take a very sober approach to this thing, and I appreciate it because in order to manage things that look so stressful and horrible to me, I do like to sort of make a couple jokes about it. And I've avoided doing that with you, which is challenging for me. I really do appreciate the chance to talk to you, and I hope that you will come back and talk to us again in the future because I don't see us getting away from this topic particularly in the coming 36 months. I rather suspect this is going to captivate us once again. Well, I would say both Iranians and the Americans seem obsessed with each other. The Iranians are obsessed with the Americans, and the Americans are at some level obsessed with the Iranians. As I said, it's a relationship that defies historical examination because it takes place at a certain sociological plane. Both parties are attracted and repelled by each other. I know you know this, but the uh, mayor of Beverly Hills, Saranian. And many others, I suppose. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm sort of, a, sort of a mediating agency between these contending points of view. <laughs> they enjoy the Shiraz wine. I can tell you my neighbors did. And the nightclubs. And they were terrific fun. They were party animals. I'm just putting that out there for all the young people in Iran. Hopefully right. somebody in the regime understands that's not going to change. That's human nature. Uh, well, they have spent 42 years trying to resist that human impulse. They, they forever create crisis for themselves by trying to control private space of the Iranian population. And that has created all kinds of problems for them. I would submit to you that one of the funniest ambassadors uh, for the Shah was Ardashir Zahidi, mm-hmm. who I think was terrific and negotiated the end of a massive hostage crisis here in Washington, D.C. He was instrumental in that, along with the Pakistani and the Egyptian <coughs> ambassador at the time. Apparently brought steaming plates of food into the police department while the negotiations were ongoing. He was a riot and uh, enjoyed the discotheques here. Late in his life, he and I communicated, uh, including at the end where he was at a hospice. He, he was 90 years old. He had, he had COVID. He had a lot to say at the end. He was the one who built the embassy on Massachusetts Avenue. He, he was one of the faithful servants of the Shah, irrespective of his flamboyance. And I think the Shah would have been wise to maintain him in Washington, but he withdrew him as an ambassador when the Carter administration came in because he thought the decadent ways of Adishizah that he did not sit well with the puritanical Jimmy Carter, <laughs> that they just couldn't see eye to eye because Carter wasn't the party type. <laughs> in that sense, at, at the critical time, he was deprived of the bridge between the two countries that would not have changed the outcome, but, but still. Well, I, I think everybody who was held in the district building as a hostage was glad he was here. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Our guest tonight has been Ray Take. I know he wants me to pronounce it tacky, but I can't. Um, of the Council on Foreign Relations. He's author of The Last Shah, America, Iran, and the Fall of the Pahlavi Dynasty. We'll hyperlink where you can acquire that book if you would like to read it. I encourage you to do so. And thank you so much for being here. Come back and see us. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for tuning in to NSLT. Share this episode with a friend. Be sure to discuss it and figure out what you've learned today about the history of Iran and where you think the laws might change in reaction to the current situation in Iran. You might also consider whether those changes will alter the geopolitical situation in the Middle East or not. 
and what laws might have greater efficacy than simple sanctions. If you want to reach us and you want to give us comments, please always do so. You can reach us on Twitter, at least for now. We can be found at ABA NATSEC, at least this week. Or you can send us an email, which might be more reliable. We're at nationalsecurityatamericanbar.org. Our producer and our writer is me, Elisa Potit, always here in my individual capacity. Francis Berkham is our editor and my co-producer. Rebecca Salita was our program manager. My other co-producer is Holly McMahon, woman among women, along with all the amazing leaders of the Standing Committee on Law and National security. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policy.